to another CornerCast podcast. I'm your host, Khalil, and this week we are talking to our old friend, Pharaoh. Pharaoh has been part of the website for, I don't know, five, six years now in some way, shape, or form. He started off doing some reviews and writing and took some time off from that, and lately he's been... Well, we had him on the podcast once, and he seems like a reoccurring guest because we always have a lot to talk about. Uh, I think, personally, we've become a little bit closer as friends or, or gotten to know each other, so we're friends now. I, w- I would consider that. I'd definitely go out and hang out with him if I had the opportunity to. But we live on different coasts. He's out in the Portland, Oregon area, and I'm over here in Connecticut, so we don't get a lot of face-to-face time, but Skype works just, just as well. So this week... Pharaoh and I discuss, surprisingly, not that much. I mean, we, we did talk a little more about, we did talk a little bit about comics and, and things like that. But for the most part, we talked about what, what, what's going on in our country. We talked a lot about um, how to reframe. Well, I, I came from a perspective on how to reframe your thinking uh, and wanting to know a little more about some of his trainings. Because if you go to pharaohbolding.com, you'll find out that he does some trainings on, on a bunch of stuff. Let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, it, it, it was just a really good, uh, interesting... I, I love having conversations because I, for me, it's, it's different because you get into these things. So uh, human resources, uh, recognizing and mitigating bias in hiring practices, having a different, difficult conversations after negative interactions at work, race, equality, equality and inclusion trainings. So he does a lot of work and we talk a little bit about how some of those sessions go for him and what it's like for him and what, what kind of work he puts into it. So we said we were going to stick to about under an hour. We ended up going for almost 90 minutes. So I feel like it was a really good conversation. We threw in some toy stuff here and there or some comic stuff here and there. But for the most part, it's been our experiences living uh, in different communities and looking at communities a little bit different um, and how people treat each other. So I I felt like it was a a rewarding and interesting conversation um, because it always reframes my thinking. And I'm always looking to grow and doing these kind of interviews and and the work I do as a teacher. I'm always looking ways to evolve. I'm always looking ways to connect better. I'm always looking for ways to tell those stories that don't always get told. So it, it, you know, it's, it's always good conversation for me. I'm adjusting the mic because it's too low right now. Oh, that didn't help much, did it? No. Okay, so you'll hear a little bit of Russell here and there, but whatever. Um, so yeah, so the conversation is really good. It's a little bit longer than our normal podcast. We're back up to our weekly interviews. Um, I'm not sure who's coming up, to be honest with you. Um, we have a lot of irons in the fire. Whether or not they pan out, we'll see. Um, 
I know I keep interview I keep teasing this origin story slash collector spotlight on Toisha's and conversation with him because we keep talking about doing it. We're texting each other back and forth lately, talking about stuff, but we just never get a chance to. Um, between my schedule and his schedule and being again on different coasts, it makes it very difficult for us to connect sometimes. But it's coming. I promise it's coming. We we both want it. He's texting me when am I on and I'm texting him when can you do it? So It'll happen. Um, so I, we just have stuff coming up. Um, like I said last week, you know, I'm looking at changing my collecting habits. So I think I might either do a solo podcast or somebody that I'm close with um, to talk about that. DJ Jesse and I are working on some fun projects that we're working on together. In fact, DJ, uh, yes, is... DJ currently is texting me and trying to keep me on the workout train, which it, which is going well for me. I you know I, I took some breaks, I took some downtime and had some fun and and didn't you know grossly go overboard, so that was good. So he's kind of keeping me in check and trying to keep and help him be motivated. Um, this week you'll notice that we're doing some San Diego Comic Con exclusive reveals or, or reviews. Um, we kind of. We just got them from the companies, so thank you to Hasbro for sending those along. Uh, it was great to, to get a good look at Optimus and all the Star Wars and, and Transformers, and we've got the Power Rangers coming up. We already did our reviews of the Marvel stuff, so that's already up on the website. I'm trying to think. So that, that's been a busy week for us. We've been doing photos and, and thinking about writing. I'm trying to think what else. So the other... Uh, big news is PowerCon was this weekend, and Masters of the Universe. We were all excited that they launched their first figure at San Diego, but we have to wait until next fall, supposedly, to get our hands on that new line of Masters Origins. And I was on the fence, I'll admit. I was really on the fence. Then I saw Battle Cat, and I saw their plans, and then I saw their price point. And I think of everything that they've done, I think price point, is the reason that I might consider getting into the line because it's not $20. It's not $20 for a figure. They're being fair priced. Now the question is whether those are going to show up. Is it going to be a pain in the ass to get them online or are we going to be able to get them at retail? I don't know. Um, Junior went, so he took pictures. So I'm sure we'll have an update from him at some point or I'll talk to him and find out more about it. Uh, no new Thundercats were shown. They did say that they have 16 figures planned in addition to the four launch figures, which should be shipping, I think, this year. Um, the ad said, the, the webpage said it was not this year, but um, from all accounts everywhere else, that the Lino, Mumra, Panthro, and Jackalman will be shipping sooner rather than later, we hope. Um, I went all in, of course. There were some hints. There was a necklace that may have hinted at Vultureman at the show, but no new figures were shown. Packaging should be shown in the next month, we've heard. Um, so there's a lot of exciting things. I mean, I figured out that it's probably going to be about 200 bucks a month, <laughs> uh, or 200 bucks a quarter, so it's 800 bucks for next year alone for Thundercats. But honestly, if Super 7 does a good job with them, I'm, I'm ready to go, and, and I'm buying them. I already pre-ordered those, and we're you know we're in. Like, there's no doubt. Um, NECA showed off its Green Lantern for New York Comic Con, and God, does it look perfect. 
Um, comes with all alternate heads, so you can have Hal Jordan or you can have John Stewart. Makes me want to buy two sets so I can have both of them. Uh, sculpting on those DC figures has been just amazing. So we're really excited to see that. And I think the big news of the week is Spider-Man. Spider-Man is going home, but not in a good way. Uh, Sony and Disney could not reach an agreement, so it looks like Spider-Man is out of the MCU. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. I feel like we have a Spider-Man story. It was exciting, exciting to see the way it ended, the last film, and what the future could hold. I have hope that the director's on and Tom Holland's on and there's a story in place already. So I'm hoping that Sony just lets that story play out. Um, maybe Disney will let them use names and references so he doesn't lose all his tech because that would be ridiculous to have all these spider suits and access to Stark tech and not be able to use it. Um, so I don't know. We don't know what this future of Spider-Man's going to be. Um, but hopefully in... 10 years or so when the whole MCU comes together again, hopefully um, they'll have Spider-Man back. I mean, and hopefully, I mean, Sony just wants to make money and I think they got a little too big for their britches and thought that they can do it without Marvel and they don't know how Marvel and Disney play. So it's going to be interesting for the next few years to see how that all plays out. Um, Try to think what else is going on. There's not a lot. I mean, I'm going to let the podcast speak for itself. I think it's 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 a departure. It's different than what we normally put out there, but it's more of the stuff I want to do. Um, I like getting to know people. I like getting to know people where they are. So there's no doubt that this is one of those types of podcasts. I think exposing people to different things. And I, th- I think... I don't think it's out of left field because you know who Pharaoh is. You know, kind of like what he likes and what he does. So, you know, it's not like 100% like, oh, this guy has nothing to do with comic books or has nothing to do with pop culture or geek culture. I think he's a perfect example of that. And if you follow him on Twitter, you'll know how how into it he is. Um, so, it's a really good podcast. I, can't, I, I don't have much more to say about that. I mean... We've got a ton of toys to review. Those will all be going up. Uh, Jesse did Mikey from DC Collectibles. The Mikey as Batman, the Ninja Turtle figure, the first of the line. Um, this week, I've did I put up Bubba Fett? I think I put up Bubba Fett. Uh, we've got Luke Skywalker coming. We've got the Sith Troopers coming. We've got the Optimus and the Bot Bots and then the Power Rangers 2-pack. Um, so, I mean, that's all what's going on with us. And we've got a ton of stuff from Mike's Comics and stuff coming, so please support him. Go to his website. Let him know you ordered from us. We He is our go-to for all things Marvel Legends, Mezco, um, and much, much, and DC. He sent us all the DCs lately, so Multiverse. So we're really excited about those. We've got to get pictures going. Um, August has just been a down month for me, to be honest with you. I needed the break uh, after San Diego and going hard. And uh, I just need a little downtime. So you'll start to see pictures popping up more on Instagram. So remember to follow us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. We are at Caster's Corner. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us on on Stitcher. Uh, Stitcher and Google Play and Apple iTunes, uh, our Apple podcast app. Uh, and if you want it somewhere else, let us know and we'll submit our feed to that service as well. Happy to do that. 
Remember to support our sponsor, Mike's Comics and stuff, who gets us some great stuff and great deals on those things. We're really excited to see what he has coming up. So that's great. So without further ado, this week's podcast is me and Pharaoh Balding. Enjoy. going on with you what's new you got a lot going on online i saw all your appearances coming up yeah um it's it's been an interesting journey since the last time we had a chat yeah (laughs) it has uh let's see um went to an area of oregon known as lake oswego i saw Uh, that i want to hear about that (laughs) let's see how to um had a fun situation. We'll, I'll just start from the beginning. Okay. We'll dive into that, but I'll go through like okay. the overview. Yeah, we'll there. go through <laughs> the arc of it. But the Lake Oswego thing happened, and there was some fallout with that. Um, I also had, uh, I've also been doing some work with a couple organizations here in the Portland area, just kind of getting out in front of more people, mm-hmm. being a part of programming that promotes these kind of conversations on race and race equity and inclusion and legitimate diversity without mm-hmm. you know pandering and, yeah and trying to have kind of keep those conversations going and trying to promote that kind of stuff um so i've been working with a few different organizations here in portland to do some of that um one organization with way stronger results than the other but i won't get into that um because it just is the nature of the beast we're right. doing this kind of work um also i started doing some um more one-on-one consulting and uh, supporting other people who are doing this kind of work in their organizations, um, which has been interesting. Being more because you know, when we I live in Portland, Oregon, and Portland, Oregon's a, a supremely white city, mm-hmm. and the people who always end up being the diversity, equity, and inclusion people in organizations here are legitimately people of color. Right. It never fails. Yeah, they're like, well, we need to hire a person of color because they'll have all the magical answers, so we won't look as racist. That's <laughs> what so, you're supposed to do, right? It's just exactly what you're supposed to do, you know. So there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of people who are now working as diversity, equity, inclusion specialists for different organizations, or the person who's supposed to be spearheading those efforts, who are running into that wall, right? Of organizations say they want this, but they they don't want to really put in the work and the planning and effort to do it. They want you to fix, do it in like a year. Right. I want you to fix it. We're done. We hired a couple of people of color. We're great. We've nailed it. We had this whole diversity thing on lock. <laughs> sure. So, you know, there's a lot of frustration around a lot of my colleagues with this stuff. Yeah. And so lately, we've I've done a lot of just grabbing coffee with people. And like, let's talk. Where yeah. are you at? What are you processing? What are you dealing with? Which has been helpful for me, too. Because sometimes you feel like you're by yourself. And as I've gotten older, yeah. I, I realize I'm not by myself, but we have to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves and that we're able to take care of each other while doing this work. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I, I don't know where to unpack all this stuff. I, I think there's <laughs> been a couple, well, because for me, there's been a couple of moments like, aha, like, or I growth moments or change moments where you look at something in a different light or you see something, um, there was... I don't know. Have you ever watched Origins of the New Black? Yeah. Okay. Have you? Did you watch the new season yet? Uh, I, I stopped after like okay. season three. I was just like, I'm good. Okay. Uh. The, well, so I, I kind of felt like I was in it. So I was like, I want to see how this ends. And yeah. it was a really heavy episode, uh, season. 
where they dealt with immigration and how people are treated in the camps um, much nicer <laughs> in the show than, than what we see on the news. Um, but there was a moment where somebody came, and I'll try to stay away from spoilers in case anybody actually watches the show and hasn't gotten there yet because it's in like the finale or close to the end, where one of the characters who has a point of view like, I'm doing something good. Why are you getting mad at me? Like, I, you're misunderstanding me. Like, you're taking this to not taking into account the other person's feelings. Like, not yeah. taking into account the other person's um, position in life or, or their race or their gender. And just kind of keep just going off of it and uh, having that moment of, like, oh, no, I'm the one that's doing something wrong. Like, I know I'm trying to tell you I'm not doing something wrong, but it reminds me of, like, Joe Biden. Like, hey, no, 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 I'm being nice. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like those oh, moments yeah. where, like, that kind of person where you just see that kind of, like, no, I'm not doing And then kind of, like, oh, like, reading the words of somebody else and then realizing that you're the person that's not listening. Like, a lot of times yeah. people just want you to listen or just want you to just take in what they're saying or see a different point of view. So there's been a lot of that for me, I think, in the last few months um, since we've been talking more about different things. Um so it's been interesting. It's been different. Um, I think I, I texted you when I was at San Diego because something yeah. kind of struck me. And because uh, and, I work in an inner city, I work with a lot of diverse kids. So I have to kind of portray American history in a fair way and in an uncomfortable yeah. way a lot of times. Yeah. And uh, um, I heard somebody say, and I, I apologize. I can't remember the guy's name because it was the first time I had ever seen him before, but you knew who he was. He was a comic book writer, I think, and said that he wouldn't, um, he wouldn't teach a class of suburban white kids or something to that effect. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, on, David Walker, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it struck me like, okay, if you're in an area, right? And, and so from, from my perspective, it was – if you're in an area, if you're living in an area or you're, or you're going to an area to, and you teach at an organization and that's the only people that signed up for your class, should you not teach it because you don't like the makeup of it? So that's, so that, oh. No, but it's my thought because it's like yeah. you're not getting well, the crowd you. you want, so I'm not going to do the job. And I feel like in my position teaching – I don't have that option where I go, I don't like yeah. the audience I'm teaching or I'm working with, so I'm just not going to do it. Um, yeah. And I don't feel like I'm in a position that I can do that. So hearing somebody say that, I'm like, as an educator, at least, I feel like whoever wants to listen to me should get to listen um, and maybe they'll get a different perspective. I look at it that way where like maybe they'll get something else. But I understand after we talked some of the, the logistics and some of the feelings that go into that. Yeah. Cause like you and I have talked about this a mm -hmm. little bit and I want to have this conversation with people who aren't me. Right. People who may not completely identify with my background, even people, even other by POC folks who don't have the same experience as me. I want us to keep talking about this. Yeah. Um, but my journey is different. Right. Like, I, I felt the same way David Walker felt up until a couple of years ago. Like, I don't even want to deal with this with white folks. They're not even listening. Yeah. I don't have time for this. But the problem is, that's an out. 
it's it's frustrating that people of color often have to be the people who have these conversations. Right. I will I will hammer that home to the end of time because I have at least three moments a week where I'm just like, you know, I could be doing something else in my time yeah. other than this. You know, there are so many different things I could be doing with my life right now right. than this. But I, I found that with whiteness and with the way white supremacy is structured, it is very easy to it, white supremacy structured for people of color to feel like they shouldn't say anything. Right. And that they shouldn't share history and knowledge and other perspectives because we get attacked. And there is an attack. There's always going to be that. Um, I, there's no guarantee that we're never not going to find ourselves in a situation where if we're trying to share some knowledge with white folks that they're not going to get all fragile on us and type into their white fragility and come at us to try to prove that they're not racist by being racist. Right. Uh, this is just a cycle of things. Um, I would love to live in a world where I could have more conversations of rooms full of people of color. But that is not the world that I get to operate in. Right. I chose a career and I chose an, and I chose work that puts me in a situation where I have to talk to white people. And I and my goal with talking to white people is to make them deal with the discomfort of the fact that they are all racist. And if I go into a room of young people, and it's a predominantly white room of white of young white people, and I'm not honest with them about what this looks like and how it forms, um, then maybe I'm not being very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my personal perspective. For me, I don't feel very helpful. I can fully understand David Walker's point of that he's been doing this for years. And he uh, and he lives in the Portland area, and he's always asked to be a part of diversity panels, quote-unquote, and <laughs> to come talk with young students who are interested in comics and then he goes into the classroom, and there's not one by PLC person in the whole room. And that's often his area that he finds himself in. Mm-hmm. I can understand his frustration. Mm-hmm. Because it would be frustrating, because um, a few weeks ago, I did a, I did a thing with um, the Urban League of Portland that was a comic creation camp for young, young students of color, yeah. for like middle school, early high school. And they, and they don't offer that kind of thing often. Like, right. That's not a career that people of color are expected to be interested in. Right. I want to make comics or I want to write books. It's not a thing that people of color should be interested in doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's the perception. So there's not so, and it's a perception that we get from an early age because we're not reflected in the things that we want to be a part of. Yeah. Um, we're not reflected in the history that we're taught often. We're not reflected in the comics that we read and the books that we read and the fiction that we watch and everything that we consume. We're either a tertiary character or we're a stereotype. Right. Or we're not there at all. AKA friends where somehow these motherfuckers lived in New York and they never <laughs> ran into a white anybody who wasn't white for like ten seasons. <laughs> it's like really? What New York are you living in? I don't understand what area of New York you're living in. Where right. how do you do how do you not have any by POC friends, acquaintances, chums, nothing. nothing. Just white for eight nine <laughs> like, But that's the media. That's the way it's presented. Right. Like when and there when there is a person of color, they're often somewhat stereotypical or a sex interest or something like that, more than 
they are a part of a story. Mm-hmm. So, like, I know David Walker, and I know that he spent most of his, pretty much, the, especially the last 15, 20 years of his career, for sure. Um, and that's probably, that's pretty much, I could probably say pretty much his whole career. Yeah. Um, wanted to make sure that there was a black perspective or there was a BIPOC perspective voice, black person voice and visual connected to his work and that we can be a superhero. We can be the hero. We can be more than just a secondary character. We can have nuance. We can be an onion that can be unpeeled. Right. So I understand his frustration with that completely because he probably ends up getting asked a lot to come talk to white kids. And I think probably no as much getting asked to talk to kids of color. Right. No. And I get it. And I think I understand that perspective. And I think after talking about it, I got a little more because I didn't know the guy, but for me walking into that panel where I was waiting for another panel and it was, it was a persons of color panel and talking about how to be a writer in this industry and not be, stereotypical not you know to be outside of the norm of what people expect and um but that's the first thing i heard when i walked in the room so in my head i was like as if you're going to be an educator you have to just whatever's in front of you like from my perspective and looking at it like i don't and, and like i just said i don't have the luxury of that um but i but talking it through i get the frustration about it but i wonder I don't know. I wish there was a better way to do it. I wish there was more opportunity. I mean, I just think about all the, the kids that I've taught over the years and all the stuff I've had where I've had after school stuff and I've tried to do more to do outside the classroom to try to get them more involved with different things, whether it was comic, comic books for one, we did cooking classes and things. And I just, I couldn't get anybody to come. Like I just couldn't get a consistent group of kids to come that would support it because there was always something else, at least in the schools I was with, it was always sports. It was always yeah. sports. They always had to be at sports. Like that was it. Like you can't waste your time cooking after class. You can't waste your time playing with comic books or reading books. Like you just got to be out in the field working. Um, yeah. And it, it sucks. Cause it's like, there are other opportunities than sports. If you push yourself, I mean, you're a great oh. example. I mean, you write cause you want to write you have it in you, you want to get it out. So you do. And I, I see the passion in it when you do it. And when I, when we talk about it, um, but you're right. I wish we'd have more people that would be involved in it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's cause one, well, like you said, um, the urban league did a great job putting it out of this camp, but there were only like nine students there, nine yeah. to 10 students, which, you know, I'm like, man, I wish we could have had, a larger room of these kids to work with each other and connect with each other. But I understand the limitations. Like I said, this is a thing where sports and things that look good, quote unquote, that fall within kind of the lot, the realm of uh, what's decent, what's what connects, what makes you kind of uh, assimilate mm-hmm. to what's supposed to be the things you should want to be interested in uh, is easy. It's sometimes uh easier to find the things you should do than the things you'd want to do or right. the things you'd be interested in. Um, I would love to chat it with more kids, but I don't always get that opportunity. Um, it's always it's pretty small groups. Um, when it comes to imparting knowledge, like I too, I, I feel like I chose to do this. Like, yeah. it, you know, I used to think, well, I just stumbled into this stuff. No, somewhere subconsciously I was like, well, 
someone's not having the conversation and I'd rather be the one at least trying to talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I found myself doing this because I feel like I should. And I, and I don't always get the luxury of being able to talk to a room that's just people of color. I mean, I live in Portland. I, that pretty much never happens. I live in Connecticut. Like, it's like, <laughs> yeah, so you know exactly what I mean. That's like, if that happens, I think I'll be a prank. And I'd walk out of the room probably, oh, no, this is bullshit. This is a trap. I'm not doing this. There are way too many people of color in this room. This is fishy. I don't leave the room. Because I've lived in Portland like this for so long that having these conversations, there's usually people of color in the room, but we're honestly like, we're talking about a 10 to 1 ratio yeah. between, you know, white and non-white people having these conversations in a room at any given time. Um, so, and I would love, and I would love to feel like maybe, but see, on the flip side, I guess I should say, I would love to feel like I go into a room and I have a discussion, and I lead a discussion, and white people walk out of the room feeling like they learned something, or young white people that I connect with feel like they got something out of it. But over the last year or so, I've realized that, no, I'm going into a room. I, I, I'll say I talk to about mm, 300 or so white people a year mm -hmm. on various panels, things, this, that, and the other. I probably affect two. And maybe one of those people will do something actionable. Yeah. And that's the ratio of things. It's, so I think, like, when I think about it that way, I can also understand where David Walker and yeah. other people who feel the same way come from. They think, well, I'm just talking into a wind tunnel anyway. And, and it takes some emotional and mental labor that a lot of us just get tired of always having to put in. Right. It would be nice. It's always nice when I get to talk to uh, BIPOC folks who work in human resources and who are doing race equity work. And we talk to each other about the crazy things that are going on and the conversations we have with folks. And it's just like, okay, we're not all insane. This is a collective experience. It feels a lot, it feels validating and it feels like you're not alone. Right. Um, but part of this, but if you decide that you're going to put yourself out there and you do the kind of work that could connect with more than just people with melanin, that you have to be willing at times to. Talk to that class full of white kids. You just have to be sometimes willing to do it. Whether yeah. you want to really do it or not, It, you might be the only black person that comes and talks to these kids all year. You might be the only person of color that comes and talks to these white kids for years. Right. You might be the only guest of the white POC right. person that, that is invited to come talk to these kids, possibly for like most of their middle school existence, high school, et cetera. So maybe it's an opportunity. It's going to be some emotional mental labor, but... Yeah, sometimes it's, it's great that you can have the luxury to not do it, but sometimes they're on the side of, ah, let's just do it. Yeah. So I noticed one thing on your website that you started doing trainings or you're advertising in some way. Like there's a page of, of, of talks that you offer, and it yeah. seems like it's outside of your day job, HR job. Like it, it seems like you can go with it, but it seems like you're promoting yourself a little bit more. Like book me outside of this or book me personally on that how's that been for you um, um picking those I, things like how did you get ready like i saw some of them and i mean look i'm not gonna deny that like i don't understand microaggressions like i see that and i think how like how does that work and 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 i'm not gonna ask you to give away like your little secrets <laughs> to your talks but like like it, it's those kind of things so like how did you so I guess it's like, how did you get into it? And then 
or how did you you know get the ideas to kind of pick those and then how did you get the training to to put something together like that uh well those com- all of those topics are based on conversations that have way too often okay <laughs> <laughs> everything that's on that training section yeah. of my website, those are conversations I have with people all the time about understanding these things. Um, so I felt that I should start putting together programming and leading discussions on these things because I talk about them all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. I talk about them in some capacity. They pop, they pop up in everything. Um, they pop up in pop culture. They pop up in our workplace. They pop up in our personal lives. They're there. Like microaggressions happen all the time. And being able to break down microaggressions, it makes people uncomfortable when you really define what, that microaggressions are connected to bias, which is connected to racism. People don't want to hear that. Yeah. They, right. No, they no, don't no, want to yeah. hear that. So it's like it's being able to unpack a thing that no one wants to hear. Um, and I did start um, over the last year. I've been doing it more so outside of my uh, day job in human resources because I've been asked to do it. Mm-hmm. I've been asked to come chat with people about this. I've been asked to be a part of a panel talking about particular things. Um, and really all these things are because people know that they've heard me have this conversation with someone else or some in some other setting. So they want me to bring this discussion on the road. Um, so it kind of started snowballing from there and it became more opportunities to reach more people. So I jumped on it because my goal with all of this is to make as many white people uncomfortable and have to deal with things as possible. I will take, I will take every room I can get into and be like, Hey, let's get uncomfortable for two hours. And I'm gonna come back and see you in six weeks so we can be uncomfortable again. Uh, <laughs> that's my jam because I've gotten to this point where it's like the other combining the other like interlocking thread of all of the things that I, that all the talks that I can lead and all the facilitations that I do is that they all focus on us having to be okay with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. There is legitimate comfort and discomfort, and that should be a very comforting thing to people, but it's not. When you're feeling some discomfort when someone's talking about race and white supremacy and oppressing people and microaggressions and all these other things that and using and weaponizing intersectionality against folks and various other aspects of that white supremacist framework. You should feel uncomfortable right. because you should be processing. I've done some of these things. I'm probably doing, I probably did some of those things last night and didn't even think about it. Yeah. These are parts of my life. <clears throat> like helping, the reason I really started doing this is because I realized that I, and I, and I've been trained by a few different folks. I've taken some training through a different, few different people. Um, the most impactful trainings I've taken are with the Center for Equity and Inclusion. Um, they're located here in Portland, Oregon. They've they've transformed the way I approach all of this. Um, they've transformed my vernacular, my language, my approach. Um, I've read a lot of therapy texts and a lot of things of that nature because there are a lot of tools that connect well to helping people unpack and unfold mm-hmm. some of these layers of white supremacy. Um, but all of those trainings combined, the primary focus is that we need to get people uncomfortable. And they need to be able to process their discomfort and then decide if they're able to dive into this. Um, Often, if you noticed on the way I set up my trainings on my website is that especially when it comes to ones with race equity, I recommend taking all of them. Yeah. Because it's the problem is that often a person of color, a BIPOC person, uh, even a white person who does equity work, they're hired to come in and talk to your company for like two hours. 
Right. And then we're done. We don't have to work on it no more this Just, year. We it's like talk. that episode of The Office where they, they yes. hire Mr. Brown to come in and make yes. everybody <laughs> – and just sign so the paper. Sign the paper. Now we're good. Yeah. Yeah, sign the paper. Yeah. You got a certificate. You nailed it. Yeah. Boom. We don't have to talk about this again. We took a training. But that's the problem. The way whiteness is structured is that whiteness wants you to come and talk. And then they want to walk away from it. It's like, well, we, we addressed it. We had a person come in and talk about it. Therefore, we don't need to deal with it anymore. I always tell people when they reach out to me, I'm coming to talk with y'all for a while. So if you're uncomfortable with me coming back, we're not we're not doing one-offs. Like, yeah. I need we need to keep the conversation going. Yeah. There needs to be processing and work happening, or we don't get anywhere. It's and that's the reason I started doing these trainings too, because because I wanted to make it understood that I have to come and talk with all of y'all. It can't right. be we talk one time and then you never talk to me again. The whole idea of transforming your ability to deal with your connection to white supremacy is being able to work through that discomfort in a in a way that isn't like hitting you with a hammer right but making you unpack all of your stuff as you go along and then figuring out how deep can you dive how uncomfortable can you dive and where are you at when it comes to your white supremacy um so that's really why i started doing this stuff um because i just wanted to get in front of more people and have more conversations it's actually worked out fairly well um the Lake Oswego situation, uh, which we'll chat about a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we'll make sure we chat about that. Uh, <laughs> and various other things that have popped up, um, they all lead to the fact that people want to talk about these things once. And then they don't want to talk, talk about it. Like, yeah, I offer some HR-related trainings. Yeah. I can help you work through your bias. I can help you figure out things that you probably shouldn't be doing when you're looking at people and hiring people. I can walk you through a lot of different things. Um, but when it comes to race equity, I'm not coming to do a one-off. Yeah. Because we have to talk about way more than something that can be covered in a one- to two-hour presentation. Um, my goal is I come in, I do one part of the chat that sets you up to do some self-work, and then I come back and we continue to chat. Mm -hmm. And we add more aspects to what we already talked about. And that allows you to bound past more and see where you're at. And we do that with some basic understanding, which I've also learned from many of the people who I've been taught facilitation skills through. Some basic understanding is that we're going to sit here in discomfort and we have to be okay right. with sitting here in discomfort. We also have to be okay with non-closure. You're going to walk away from this and I'm not giving you answers. But there's no answer to this. You're going to be dealing with this for the rest of your life. Like If you're white, you're going to be trying to not be racist for the rest of your life. You're going to fail at it about 95% of the time. But you at least got to put in effort. You're gonna stumble. You're gonna fall. But you have to be on. You have to be comfortable with the discomfort of stumbling and falling, like, and that we are only sitting in this room and we're gonna speak our truth responsibly. And we're not gonna gaslight somebody. And we're not gonna put somebody in a situation where they feel like they have to do your emotional lifting for you. And once we start from that basis, we move forward, and we build on it every time we meet. And we should be doing this for a few months because we need to plant the seeds. To help you unpack things. It's not and an overnight thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an overnight thing. And that's the problem. Like, so many organizations want to just hire someone to come in and do a race training. And bam, we talked about it. We never do it again. No, I want to hang out with you for a while because we need to be real uncomfortable. So we need to hang out for a little while and we need to figure out where y'all are at and what we can do. Because often people want you to come in and do a race training and then they want to plan for how they can make it better. Well, no, your job is to make your plan. But y'all need to figure out where you're at. 
My job is to help you figure out where you're at, unpack that. And then once we've done our unpacking for a few months, how, how where are you? How are you feeling? Yeah. What is coming up for you? And we're checking in every step of the way. Right. But still, okay, we've talked about this for like four months, five months. We have not walked away from it. You've had to sit with this for four to five months. Where do you think your organization is at now? Yeah. Because then that's the final question. How many people do you think are on board with the idea that we've been a racist organization? Whether they believe and, and are they really on board? Or are they just trying to tell you something? How much effort are y'all willing to put in? And are you ready to take the next step? Because if you're not, then you just you've got to start from you've got to keep moving. So how okay? So how do you you put people? Your trainings are going to put people in uncomfortable situations, make them sit with it, make them understand it, try to reframe the way they think and the way they act. How do you personally deal with being uncomfortable, messing up, doing something wrong, walking into a situation? It's how do you personally deal with that? Because I'm curious to see like how, how, how you rebound from it um, or how you process it versus how you want everybody else to at least yeah. that's my perspective yeah. of like because it, it, it helps to kind of figure out like where you're coming from too yeah. see I, I've, I've done so much of my own work on this and i'm still doing my own work on it this is lifelong work for me too yeah like I, I look at it as i'm a person of color who works in white institutions of course i'm connected to white supremacy I, I'm, I'm, if I don't stop myself from being complicit, I'm complicit every day right. to white supremacist actions in the organization that I work for. I work in higher ed. That is super white supremacy. That is like the white supremacy bastion, right? <laughs> like, right. You can't get, you can't really get too much more white supremacist than like Ivy League style liberal arts. Like you, that's pretty much as white as it gets when it comes to education. Like that is the apex of white education. And I have to, to deal with my connection. And the way people perceive me in the community when they realize where I work mm-hmm. as my day job. Like, I, I understand that completely. Um, I also, I'm married to a white person. There's, I, I'm connected through white supremacy through the fact that I'm married to a white person who has white family members. Yeah. I, I'm connected to that whiteness and that respect. There's privilege I get when people find out my wife is white. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, she, he must have been vetted. So he's on the good ones. So, you Check. know, there's a whole... Yeah, exactly. Like we checked that off the list. He's good. We can let him in. You know, I, I deal with the I, I deal with the concept of white supremacy for myself all the time. And dealing with that helps me deal with how I react to people when they do white supremacist things to me mm-hmm. or to others around me. Because I used to just get mad. I used to just be mad. All the time mad. Because you can literally go through life dealing with this stuff and just be one hundred percent mad all the time. It's super easy. Right. It's way too easy. But that's the structure of white supremacy. They want you to be mad because when you're mad, you're not processing and you're allowing them to defeat you a little bit in your head, in your heart. It's structured for you to fail mm-hmm. as a person of color. So my thing is I'm always working on myself and I'm always candid about working on myself. Like, look, I'm no expert in anything. I will never build myself as an expert on anything. I can talk to you about some stuff. I know a whole lot of stuff we can talk about. And I can impart it in a way where it doesn't make you defensive. But the goal is to not make one particular white person in the room feel like they're racist mm-hmm. or calling them a racist. Because the fact of the matter is white people are racist. Like, <laughs> just throw it out there on the table. Regardless of how any white person wants to feel about that, 
y'all are racist. And I tell them this all the time. It's like whiteness is built on racism because there was no such things as race and all this jazz until white folks said they need to categorize people who weren't white. So like, that's just history lesson. So that's like we have to go back and dive into the history of racism, which I kind of do a little bit of that, too. Um, it's like, so if you're racist, we also have to then break away from the good-bad binary. The other thing that I used to grapple with a lot is that good-bad situation where you're racist and you're horrible and you're a bad person. This is, this is one of those common areas that we all get hung up on. Like it's something that I work on for myself, too. And I go into rooms understanding that people are automatically going to go here. The good-bad binary. And I think we've, you and I maybe chatted about this before, yeah. where it's the polar, us the poles. It's either you're the greatest human being on earth, right, or you're the baddest person to ever walk the planet. And when it comes to racism, people only think of racism as you're a white supremacist. And when they think white supremacy, they don't think the overall structure of whiteness. They automatically think, well, you're a Klansman right. or KKK um, or a Nazi or something of that nature. Um, you're not my neighbor. Right. And this is the thing that we have to help that for myself used to frustrate me so much. And I've done a lot of work on it. So now I'm able to go into these rooms and be at least in a headspace where I don't take offense to white people wanting to argue that they're not racist. Because there's that good, bad binary thing. And it's easy for us all to fall into that. We can all think that racist person's a horrible person. There are racist folks who donate the causes and volunteer their time. And for the most part, are overall quote unquote good people. They're just super damn racist. <laughs> it doesn't make you the worst person in the world. It means it's a thing that you need to work on. Right. Human beings need to keep working on things. It's a part of what makes human beings functional creatures and to be able to evolve. Like so, it's like if you're racist, you're racist. You're built. You've been. You grew up in a racist culture. You've built into a racist society. You're racist. That doesn't necessarily mean you're bad. Right. And now, I don't think people separate the two. That's like you said, people they, don't separate they don't. The two. It's either. And have you ever seen um, Avenue Q? Yes. <laughs> I so love Avenue that, so, so that's that's what keeps every time you say it, that's what keeps popping in my head. Everybody's a little racist. Everybody's get you know, everybody's got their bias. Everybody's got their feelings yeah. about different groups. And I think it's I don't know. I it, It's not good, but it's not you're not the worst person in the world. No, and if you can understand that about yourself, you can at least work on it. Right. So this is the thing that I always impart to. And this is where I started giving myself, this is when I gave myself this, um, when I gave myself this out, it allowed me to give white people a little bit of this out as well. Where it's like, I don't need you to be perfect. Yeah. I just need you to be better than you were yesterday. Yeah. Like, I don't need you to be perfect. No one's going to nail 100% of this and be the most unracist human being on earth which frustrates the living heck out of me every time I hear the president say he's the least racist person ever. And it's like, please don't talk no yeah. more. That's not a thing. That's literally right. not a thing. And I've had other white people say something to me. Well, I'm not racist. I do this, this, and this. And I know this. And it's like, but everything you're literally saying plays into white supremacy. Your litmus test for you not being racist is in fact racist. And that's a hard one for pe white people to understand. But it's like, I don't need you to be perfect. I just need you to try to be better than you were yesterday. Like, and legitimately try. Not one of those, well, I just tried to say this or that, because they love weaponizing that as well. Yeah. When white people get really uncomfortable about this stuff, they play at it. And this isn't just even with a race conversation. I've had this with biased conversations. Where the 
next day, or I see somebody down the line, they're like, we know them want my bias to get in the plane. It's all quotes, and it's like sassy voice. Yeah. And like, but that means you got nothing out of it. That means you got uncomfortable, you felt some discomfort, and you decided to run instead of trying to process and unpack that discomfort. The number one issue with all of this and getting people to understand it, and it was even for me, my understanding of not getting mad at white people all the time about this is that there is supreme discomfort that comes with this. And part of that discomfort comes from this mindset of ignorance and subconscious ingraining. So white folks are okay with things. That white folks are super okay with something happening like the shooting in El Paso. Mm-hmm. And feeling like that's the most daunting thing they've dealt with all week. And then walking away from it in like 24 to 48 hours and moving on with their lives. But for many of us, you and I, many other people of color, many other marginalized folks, by PLC folks in general, this is like another Tuesday in our lives. This is like more trauma added on to the trauma we already deal with regularly. Well, And we can't be mad. Like, I can sit and be mad at white people for not getting it. And but I can't be at the same time because they don't have to get it. I can't fight the structure that they were created and put into. Right. Like their structure is made for them to give some thoughts and prayers and keep moving on with their lives. To see something in Newsweek and act like all of a sudden it's new. Oh my God, they're being racist. Yeah, they're being racist. It's been happening for a while. That used to be my response. Yeah. <laughs> but now it's not. Well, and so I just had the experience this week with the two shootings that happened. Yeah. Right. Where we were in Ohio about an hour, two hours, two hours, an hour and a half away from where it happened. And uh, I was like, okay, it happened. And then we went to Walmart yesterday and my girlfriend was just like on edge. She's like, where are the exits? Where's everything? And I just looked at her and I'm like, why are you like, I go to Walmart every day. Like, or every other day, I'm always looking for toys. Like I'm always, I'm in and out. I go in, I know, you know, where everything is. I know all the, like, it doesn't even, and it, it didn't affect me. All these shootings aren't because I grew up in a neighborhood where there was a shooting a night. I had, before I was 13, I had three of my friends killed. Like I, it doesn't, I think I got desensitized to it, to be honest with you. Like it's sad. And I, I would like to feel something more, but it doesn't impact me. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't get yeah. to me. And it's, maybe it is trauma. Maybe it is. I've just learned to just shut up. Cause I know I've done work on myself too, where I know that when traumatic things happen, my head shuts off. I don't, I don't feel it. Like yeah. my dad died. I didn't cry. Like I watched him literally watched him die. And I was upset. And then 20 minutes later, I was in my car. I was picking up my friends. I was going to get dinner. Like, I had things to do. I had to go make a mix CD for the, the funeral. I had to, you know, close the store, his business. Like, I just shut it off. I learned at 15, at 12, that it happens. This is life, and you move on. And yeah. so, like, the shootings and things that are happening now are really sad. But I'm looking at going, that's really sad. I'm happy I wasn't there. I move on. And the other thing is I've worked in politics and I look at it and go, nothing's going to change. Like I would like to sit here and say, we're going to change something. I heard somebody do an interview. I forgot who it was um, in the last couple of days 
that was oh it was alonzo Bowden. he was talking about the shootings which on joe rogan's podcast and he was like if we really wanted something to change if we really cared about the people we would have changed it oh yeah we would have changed it years ago so we can be outraged all we want we can care all we want we can send thoughts and prayers and tweets all we want but we're clearly not going to do anything so it's why are we going to get hung up on it and that is a really shitty place to be as people that we're just like, we're really sad. We really should change something, but nothing changes. The political machine and the money machine just keeps moving. Um, and it's, it's hard. So it's, it's, I don't even know how to deal with things. And you're right. I put, I put a lot of effort. We talked about it. I put a lot of effort and it reframed my head because I saw our town put in three giant, uh, teepees in the middle of town on a white church lawn and yeah. that was their theme for their weekly for their yearly free bible camp and they had a video of people in headdresses tied up white people and danced around in headdresses and i'm like how is this okay and then i got it's kicked so out i got kicked out of facebook for it because and i didn't say anything that was inflammatory i didn't say anything that was rude or disrespectful i simply said here's why this is wrong here are places and people you can talk to and the answer was the pastor really likes native american stuff so he did his research and it's okay and i'm like these aren't houses it's not okay like you didn't even i know people that build wigwams for educational spaces right you could have gotten them to build wigwams for you right you could have. You could have gotten somebody to tell you that those pictures of the Indian, the Native American people tied folks yeah, up are wrong. Good look, right? But <laughs> and it was and politicians in town did it. I mean, I worked at a business in town, and anybody that listens to it knows, I had the most racist bosses in town. Like the jokes I used to hear in the back, of them saying things, yeah. were horrible, and I wouldn't even want to repeat them. They were that bad, but I needed a paycheck. And I mean, that's what you, that's the complicity part. Like, I'm going to sit there and just deal with it, even though, like, you're talking about, like, people that look like me or you're talking about people that are my family and you think it's okay to make all these jokes. And when a person of color comes in, it's not what's wrong with your pet, right? Because they're doctors, they're vets. Yeah. It's not what's wrong with your pet is the minute they walk into the thing, the doctor usually walks out the back door and goes, make sure they pay for their stuff. Yeah. Like, make sure they can pay for it before they walk in the room. And I'm like, you don't ask that of 99% of the other people, but the three black clients we have, you have to make sure that they can. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do with it all. Like, I, and that's the problem with me. I shut it off. Like, I don't get angry. I just don't think about it. Like, I, yeah. I, it just short circuits in me, and I just can't deal with it, I guess. And no, that's, I understand that completely. That's part of it. That's yeah. literally part of it. It's structured for us to walk away and just accept it. Yeah. And sometimes for our emotional and mental health, it's usually best to just walk away. Yeah. There are moments that I'm just like, no, nah, I'm not doing this with you. I walk away. It's just safer for me. I Because at the end of the day, we have the right to not have to continually inundate ourselves with white folks being racist. Yeah. And white folks being White folks doing things that put us in negative situations. We have the full right to just, I'm not engaging with that. Yeah. Um, the problem is, like you were just saying, really one of the core problems is that you can, when you eat, 
I've learned so much. I've learned so many different ways to have this conversation with white people. But there are still, there's still such a large margin of error. Right. Because no matter how I package it, there is still going to be a white person more often than not, not really wanting to hear what I have to say. Because they're not willing to deal with the discomfort that they might, that they are doing something racist. Not even might, that they are doing something racist, classist, and all those interceptions that apply to that. Sexist, etc. Xenophobic, yeah. transphobic. They don't want to hear it. Right. Because it, automatically they hear that you're saying I'm a bad person. Even when you frame it as this is a problem with whiteness itself, it is not your personal problem. It is a symptom of a larger system. There are still white people who get mad and don't want to hear it and react the way they reacted to you at the Facebook group. Right. Where it's just like, well, we don't want to hear that. No. And I've been having this conversation with white folks for some time about if you're going to do something like put up indigenous or native uh, native installations. Right that you should probably pay for and talk to someone from that community who is willing to do a paid consultation right. to help you understand where you are dropping the ball. Right. And this isn't even just for white people. This is for all of us. It's for everybody. You're yeah. somebody's culture. If you call yourself making an installation or doing a thing that's based on someone's culture, you need to be finding someone in that community right. who is from, who has that cultural background to understand that you can pay for the time and effort that they're going to have to put into helping you understand where you dropped the ball. And, and if you're not willing to do that, and you think, well, I just did my own research and I've nailed it. You're absolutely wrong. Well, <laughs> right. right. No, now. you're absolutely right. But the problem is it's not only getting the people to come in, it's then using what they give you. Because I think that's the biggest thing where I've seen that happen over the years where you bring in somebody from a different culture, you bring in somebody from a different group to give you a different perspective um, to, in, in, in the field I'm in, it's still legitimize it. It's hundred percent to legitimize what you're doing, but then you don't use any of the stuff they give you. You've yeah. just, you've that's, checked the box. Like you said, and that's the other part. Yeah. You've checked the box again, right? Instead of actually listening and implementing what someone's telling you. Right. And this is where I got the understanding that why people don't get it. Right. I can't expect them to get it. Because they've never had to get it. It's never been a part of, like like you were just talking about, you grew up in an area where there were shootings. Yeah. I grew up in the same kind of area. I grew up in the inner city of Detroit. I mean, I grew up poor. Yeah. Like, we can just drop the OR off. I was tough. Like, we had, like, we were struggling. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this was no joke. It was five of us. This was not, you know, it was five kids. This was not an easy situation. Right. My whole time growing up. And it's like, but in Uganda, it's because whiteness puts us, has created that caste and that social system where this is the world that we live in. We're expected to not rise up above the caste and social system we've been right. put into. So when you do, I think it does build some ingrained callus inside of you where all these shootings are happening. And it's horrible that these things are happening. And it's insane to me that we haven't uh, done anything about this. And this is happening su at such a regular clip. We've had 252 mass shootings in this country this year. Right. That's insane. Yeah. We haven't even hit 252 days right. of the year. It was like, that's to, to verbalize it and to see the statistics is crazy. 
but we also live in a country where it's obviously not a priority. Right. Because I, honestly, we should be addressing not only that these shootings are happening, that this stuff is driven by white supremacy, that many of these things are hurting, hurting and harming people, melanated people in general, that they're targeting melanated people in yeah. general, and that this has become a situation where you literally can't go to Walmart without feeling like there's a danger. But for, for many of us, it's like, well, yeah, this is just Tuesday. Right. And, and, I've, and I've had some conversations about this recently, too, about the, um, like I wrote an article on my website talking about um, not leaving my house without my wallet. Yeah, I saw, you know, it, well, go ahead, you tell it, and then I'll tell you <laughs> what happened after that. And, and I, I had someone, um, I had actually a, um, a member of the Lake Oswego City Council said they read my article and they wanted to, and they, they were trying to understand. So I broke it down for them. And, you know, I, I feel like I broke it down in the article. Yeah. But this is one of those things with white folks. Sometimes they need to hear you say it so they can feel like they understand. They want you to hold their hand <laughs> through it. They want that emotional yeah. labor. Um, it's sad because I saw Tommy Orange who wrote the book Dare Dare. Mm-hmm. It's a great book. He's an indigenous writer. He's awesome. Um, he talked about, I saw him at a talk. He was talking about his book. He was talking about white people coming up to him after reading his book. And his book isn't exactly cheery. Because he's talking about the experience of Native and Indigenous folks in the United States today. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some of those nuances that are still connected to their culture and tribal th- and, and the tribal thoughts and methods, but also grappling with the Western culture. Right. And he said white people come up to him and be like, I loved your book, and they'd be so happy. And he's like, this book isn't fun. So you loving it? He was like, he basically felt like it was like white people pain and trauma porn. Right. That people of color are kind of like white people pain and trauma porn. Yeah. They don't even realize it sometimes that they get something out of our pain and anguish. So, like, I'm explaining to this woman that, you know, yeah, basically, I li- we live in a country where I can't go outside of my house feeling comfortable enough without identification. I even put my garbage on the curb with my wallet in my pocket. Like, I'm, like, getting dressed to go outside, basically. Every time I just step outside to get the mail, I throw my wallet, my, my mailbox on my porch. Yeah. But there's this ingrained understanding that at any time someone could ask me for my identification. If I don't have it, I have a problem. But then on the flip side, if I go to pull it out and they think I have a weapon, then I also have a problem. So there's no safety to it at all. Right. And that's this thing of being a person of color and having it understood that, like you said, people can talk thoughts and prayers and all that jazz and be like, that's horrible. That's but you're not we're not changing anything. Right. Whiteness is super comfortable with this being the way. Until there's enough white folks who are uncomfortable, who are realizing that we should not be comfortable with these rough, horrible things, we're not going to change any structural system. Y'all can talk about it on your social media. Like I'm so appalled and I'm so shocked. Yeah. But your voice is stronger than mine. Yeah. Black people only make up three percent of the world of the population of the United States. Yeah. Like, and I mean, like the people who have a voice, you have a voice. You can make your congressperson listen to you way more than I can make my congressperson listen to me. Right. Whiteness still begets whiteness. Yeah. If white, more white people actually did the work and dove into this stuff, it would actually make little incremental change. I'm not talking about it would change the world. Right. But it would, the complexion of things and a lot of different nuanced things would be different. I think, I think so, so two things. One, um, I got my backpack here that I took to San Diego with me. And I read your yeah. article before. I think I read it before I went. I had to have read it before I went because in the front pocket, 
I now keep that mm -hmm. with me. Never would have even thought about it. Never. So I just showed my passport. I should have said that out loud. <laughs> you um, open it. <laughs> no. Well, I'm not recording the audio, the video anyway. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, no, I just, I never even thought about it. Never really even, but between, um, between your article, the, the one you wrote, and then everything that's been going on, I'm like, so I'm going right next to Tijuana, like 20 minute trolley yeah. ride. Yeah, I'm going to carry it with me. Like, I'm just going to throw it in my backpack. I take my backpack everywhere. At least I'll have it. So there was, you know, so that definitely reframed. And then Orange and the New Black, there was one of those things where somebody just didn't have their ID on them and they got thrown into detention camp. And I'm like, that was a week after San Diego that I watched it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, no, these two things kind of at least cemented it. And I haven't taken it out of my bag. It's in my bag. It's probably going to just stay there. Like, that's where I know it is. And because if I don't have my wallet, if it's my wallet's in my car, my wallet's on my table, yeah. at least I have it. Um, the other thing is you saying that and, and, and us talking about if we wanted to change, it would change. Also put into my head um, that uh, um, if, if the kids – so I'm from Connecticut, and I, <laughs> I have all these brushes with things. I taught in Newtown the week before the shootings, wow. and my family knew – my mom knew that I was teaching in Newtown – and I was teaching that day, but I was teaching in Hartford that day. And she was calling me frantically that day saying, was I there? Like, because I could have yeah. been. Like, I, I was down the street teaching the week before. Um, and if we didn't change it when those kids got shot, like, we had an opportunity. We had a lot. We had a rich, white community that got shot up mm -hmm. and five-year-olds got killed. Yeah. If we didn't change the gun laws because of that... I don't see it changing because they went to a Walmart. Like nope. we, we the, it was prime time. It should have happened then. It sh if we yeah. were going to change it, that's, that was the moment and it didn't. So, and, and it goes back to the whole thing of like, it's not going to like, we, we we're sorry, we're sad, but it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, so what happened? What happened on your thing? What happened on Oswego? <laughs> All right. So, um, I was invited to take part on a panel at the Lake Oswego Festival of the Arts. Okay. Um, it's a thing that they do every year. It's like kind of like their annual arts festival that they do kind of in downtown Lake Oswego. Um, for those of your viewers who um, or your listeners who don't know uh, the area I'm talking about, uh, Lake Oswego is a little suburb outside of uh, kind of outside of Portland, Oregon. It's about 20 minutes away from mm -hmm. Portland, Oregon. Um, Lake Oswego is supremely affluent. Okay. Um, the average household income there is like $93,000 a year. Um, so these are not broke folks. Nope. Uh, <laughs> they have, uh, you, when you walk through Lake Oswego, you feel like maybe you're underdressed and you shouldn't be there if you didn't wear your best clothes, quote unquote. Um, it is. It has a reputation for being a city that does not take kindly to people of color walking through their city. Okay. Um, they have the nickname of Lake No Negro. Okay. Because it is pretty much known that if you're a black person, or you you're a black or brown person, if you have any kind of melanin in your skin, that Lake Oswego is not your place. Um, I've lived in Oregon almost twelve years now. 
Uh, I avoided Lake Oswego for a reason. Like, I never felt the need to go out there. Mm-hmm. It was like, I know what I'm getting into. I'm good. I'm not doing that. Um, but I was asked to be on a panel at the at the Lake Oswego Festival, the arts this year. Um, and the panel was comics and activism. Okay. So it was myself and a panel of five other uh, BIPOC creators, artists, community activists who make comics and use those comics to, or, you know, are in a mashed in pop culture as a whole, connected to the pop culture spectrum in some way, shape, or form, and using that platform to do social activism, to connect with folks, to talk about issues. Mm. Um, so I was like, okay. I, I was like, I'll do it. I'll come out. Um, but I was like, I, I talked about it on my social media. I was like, don't get it twisted. I know what I'm going into. Like, I'm not stupid. Yeah. You know, I wasn't born last night. Um, I know racism when I see racism. Uh, <laughs> I know what racism looks like. And when a few people that I know, people of color, who found out that I was going, they reached out to me and were like, dude, are you sure about this? And they started sharing their own stories. So yeah. working in Lake Oswego and getting pulled over by the police every time they go to Lake Oswego. Or just the looks and the general discomfort of even touching the area of Lake Oswego. But a lot of it was that they would get harassed coming either in or out of Lake Oswego by the Lake Oswego Police Department. Okay. Um, Lake Oswego has a history of some supremely racist things. Over the last couple of years, that racism came to a head, started infiltrating their middle schools and high schools. And it was like slurs and slander and notes flying around and spray painted graffiti with slurs. And then they had a, a situation where a police officer got pulled uh, off-duty cop got pulled over, and he was a person. He was a black guy. Mm-hmm. He got pulled over by. Oh my fault! He didn't get pulled over. He pulled over someone else. Okay. He was on duty. Now this is the officer of the law. Yeah. He pulls over a white, a white um, Lake Oswegan, and they go off on him, and call him all sorts of names and tell him that they he works for them. They let him go. They go off on this black guy. So when all that got into the news. That's when Lake Oswego decided that maybe they should do something about it. Yeah. Um, it is not going well. Um, I'll let people read the article. There's a whole lot of stuff that's back there. Um, it is not going well. Uh, but I went out to Lake Oswego understanding that this is the situation I was getting into. Um, it was pretty racist. Like, I, I can't, there's no other word for it. I got out of the car, and there were instantly like 30 sets of white eyes on me, trying to figure out what in the world I was doing getting out of a car near downtown area. I'm smiling at people. I'm like, how are you doing today? And no one will look me in the eye or people who do, they just frown at me. So like right off the mm-hmm. bat, I'm not even in your town for five minutes. Right. I've never come to your city. I'm not even in your city for five minutes. Automatically, I know I should have just got back in the car. Because you've imparted it right away. What right. in the hell are you doing in my town? So we do the panel. Um, before the panel, we, we are... Myself and um, other people who were on the panel were sitting having a chat for a minute. Uh, and a couple of members of a group that they have in Lake Oswego called Respond to Racism, um, which is a group that formed after all these super racist things that they couldn't avoid anymore got into the news. Um, they decided they were going to form a group to address this. Um, and it was started by a couple of uh, black members of the Lake Oswego community, people, black people who've been living in Lake Oswego for 30 some odd years, which blessed their hearts. I don't know how. Yeah, I, I, it's rough enough living in Portland sometimes with white folks. I can't see living out there where you obviously aren't meant to be there. They make it known. So they started this organization to try to start having more conversations about racism in their city. 
um, they also haven't really gotten anywhere near as far as they'd like to go on. And um, we'll chat about that. I'll piece that into the end here. Um, but a couple of their white members sat down next to us and proceeded to white-splain a black festival to us. And it was just like, you didn't even ask us if we knew what the festival was. You go tell the black people what the black festival is. You, like, like, this is where we're going to start. Like, yeah. okay, sure. So we do the panel, and the panel lasts about 90 minutes. The video is on my website. It was actually a good panel. I felt everybody felt strong about what they produced. But there was still that air of racism in there. Like, you knew that we were making people uncomfortable. They didn't like it. Um, so we go and get some dinner or some late lunch or however you want to put it at a sushi place across the street from the um, from the arts and um, the community center that they did the event at. Yeah. Uh, we go into the sushi place. Awesome Korean gentleman. He's super cordial. He's like getting us everything we need and everything. We're sitting there. We're chatting. We're the only people in the restaurant at the time. So it's like five, almost five in the afternoon. Yeah. On like a lazy Saturday, you know, it's not like, and this is like a city like Lake Oswego. Those are fluent cities. The sushi joint is probably not the place people are going to right. like fourth. Yeah. Um. So we're like the only people in the sushi joint, and we got like, you know, we're on the line, and I see this couple come in, this white couple come in, they sit at a table, kind of adjacent to us. Um, and my, I'm sitting there and I'm chatting with my colleagues, and you know, we're sharing stuff, and I'm eating, and then I look up and I realize that the white couple hasn't looked at us the whole time they've been in the restaurant. He's looking straight at her. She's looking straight at him. They are not moving their gaze toward us in any way. And they ate their food and they were gone in like 10 minutes. Okay. Because God forbid they'd be in a room with that many people of color. The person that owns the place and the patrons? Oh, no, we can't do that. So then my time in Lake Oswego ended where I was waiting for my ride and I was chatting with, um, I was chatting with one of the panelists. And we were just, and he was telling me about his experience in Lake Oswego because he had been flown in to be a part of this event. Mm-hmm. And um, our creator named Ben Passmore, he does, uh, he did um, your white, your black friend, okay, and other stories. And he also did, uh, he just did uh, bottom feeders, just did the art for the Reverend Neville bottom feeders. Um, cool guy. We're sitting there chatting because I'm waiting for my ride chair to come, and he's telling me about his experience in Lake Oswego. And how basically the whole time he's been there, people been staring at him like he's an alien. Like he's just the most, like, how dare you? Like, why are you walking around here? Yeah. Um, and he's just imparting, like, yeah, I don't think I'll come back here again. And he's telling me about a panel that he had because he was a keynote. He okay. was a keynote uh, guest of the event. Yeah. Just tell me about his panel he had the day before. That was his solo panel. <clears throat> and a person got up in the audience and they literally said to him, white woman got up and literally said to him, um, do you use the word nigger? Why do you get to use the word nigger? And why can't I use the word nigger? Just blatantly, openly, fine with just asking. Just saying and asking. See, and the educator... Okay, I'll stop for you just for one second. See, the educator in me goes, I'm glad they asked so we can tell them. But at the same time, not in front of a crowd of people. Like not in the middle of say the N word. Right. Like just, yeah. Just just, straight up said it with the hard R. Yeah. Just like, there's so many different things where I'm like, good for her for asking. But at the same time, I'm like, not in the middle of the keynote, like not in the middle of like, however many hundred of people that are there. Like that's what you ask somebody privately or like you, you ask for the, because I, 
personally, I like the idea of people asking the question because, or not that specific question, but I like the, I'm sorry to bump into your story, but like, I, I, I like that the curiosity for it, as long as it's going somewhere positive. Yeah. You know? So, all right. So go ahead. Anyway. So that happened. Yeah. And he just kind of basically kind of addressed it like, well, no, you can't say that. No. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole time we're having our conversation, there are white people walking through us. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not in the way. We're not blocking the entrance to the restaurant or anything else. We're just standing kind of on the side of the sidewalk. These people could walk around us, walk to the left of us, the right of us. They're walking through us. So we keep moving. And by the time my ride share comes, I realize we're standing in the parking lot because they've moved us off the sidewalk because they kept coming through us. And then they were still coming through us when we were in the parking lot. So we're literally not in anyone's way at this point. Right. We somehow, you know, you just keep moving and moving and you're in the parking lot. And by the time that happened, my ride came, I was like, yeah, I'm good. I'm just going to go home and act like I never came down there. So I hesitated about talking about it. Like, I was going to write something about it. And I was just like, I was sitting with my thoughts a little bit on it. And I was like, well, you know, it was racist. But in the broad lexicon of racist, man, it was racist, but I guess it wasn't that racist. So maybe I shouldn't dive into it and go in on them the way I would typically go in on things like this. Um, but then I started talking with my colleagues who were also at the event. And that's what drove me to write about it. Because the more of my colleagues who were also invited to the event told me about their experiences, the more the more disgusted and saddened I was by the whole thing. Yeah. Um I had a colleague I have a um I have a couple of colleagues uh of a um I have a couple of colleagues. Um she and her husband, they are both Asian. Um and they were sitting and they were doing a panel on kind of like uh, community zine making, things mm-hmm. that I make, nature, yep. nature, um, making zines, uh, make self-publishing, doing community voices in self-published literature. So they're doing their panel. And a white woman gets up in the audience, and her question is, so how, where are you from? What part of the Orient are you from? Are you Oriental? So they're like, well, uh, you know, I guess, you know, they're like, we're South Asian. Um, you know, some people identify as North Asian, Southeast Asian, yeah. or sometimes they identify by, you know, so no one really identifies as Oriental. The woman says, eh, no, I think I like Oriental better. And sits down. So that happened. Uh, okay. then, one of, then one of my colleagues who um, had art in one of the, in the exhibits that they had on display, uh, she was also volunteering, and Someone asked her, like, someone was talking to her about her art, and she was like, oh, yeah, well, let me tell you about this piece. And they stopped her midway, and they were like, well, well, where are you from? And she was like, well, you know, I grew up here in Portland. I'm originally from Portland. They were like, no, I don't think you understand. Where are you from? Yeah, I get that a lot. Yeah. So that and multiple other incidents and emboldened me to be like, okay, we're writing about this because y'all are racist. Y'all didn't yeah. even try. This is just a racist city. We should have never been asked to do this. Yeah. Because you put all of us in a harmful situation. Right. On top of that, come to find out, the curators of the event shared with me that the city of Lake Oswego did not want them to do this event this way. We were, they did not want all these people of color coming up in their city. They didn't think this was a good idea. They had got a number of pushback from the city of Lake Oswego. And the patrons who came to the event, who came to the festival, 
evidently the whole weekend they would say completely racist, openly racist things out loud to make sure that people who are volunteering and running the event could hear it. Yeah. So this thing was a mess. Right. And I wrote about it. Yeah. So I wrote about it. I was just like, no, we're going to write about this. And we're going to write about this from a real place so it can't be disputed. It went viral. And it went viral to the point where I had people of color from Lake Oswego literally sending me messages like, thank you so much for talking about this. I've lived here for this many years. And honestly, no one listens to us. Yeah. We're outnumbered. No one listens to us. They think that we're just talking. This is a city that only has like 40,000 40, citizens. Yeah. And they have less than, they have like 8% people of color. Right. Less percent, um, let 8% of their, um, of their constituency is like by POC. So it's like, that's small when you think of 40,000 people in a city. Yeah. Only 8% of them identify as a person of color or a marginalized person in that respect. So, I mean, I had people messaging me, and then I got messages from the city, from Lake Oswego City Council, who wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I also had a conversation with the people who run, re- respond to racism about this. Um, the, um, evidently, the Lake Oswego City Council reached out to me because this information got to their local newspaper that someone wrote this article about Lake Oswego. Uh, <laughs> so, oh God, we're going to talk to that black dude yeah. uh, because this is going off the rails. Um, so I ended up having lunch with the Lake, or well, a member of the Lake Oswego City Council, which was fine. Um, but I tell right away that they are not touching this topic anytime soon. No. It's just going to be what it's going to be. And this takes us back to, once again, if you're not going to change it, case uh, <laughs> Right. But then I talked to the people who run Respond to Racism, who are, um, who are both black and the founder of Respond to Racism, the co-founder, uh, she lived in Lake Oswego for like 38 years. Mm-hmm. And she talked about, as soon as she got there, she realized that, you know, maybe what did I move into? Um, because the white people would like grab their purses when she walked by them in a supermarket. Mm-hmm. And all of the familiar tropes that we're right. all familiar with when it comes to white people being uncomfortable with other people around them, people of color around them. So... I had a good lunch with them too, but I think that at this point they do feel like they don't know what to do. Right. Because they've been tasked, once again, people of color have been tasked with making this happen, but then there's no support and there's no, and there's no buy-in. Right. So it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going anywhere. It's kind of stuck in a pattern right now. They're getting all these people to come out and talk, but nothing's changing in their community. Right. No one's really morphing in that community. There's none of the approaches to things. Like they just created a um, diversity committee. The city created a diversity committee. Has like no people of color on it. Of course, why would like, they? Well, why right. would they? Right. And what was messed up about it was that the one person of color they do have on the Lake Oswego City Council, they voted for the diversity committee members when he wasn't able to attend the city council meeting. So like, they wanted to make sure he wasn't in the room. <laughs> they did their vote, and it's like this is the stuff where we don't get anywhere. Right. Because as long as there's so much fear of having to change and having to deal with the discomfort, there will n- there won't be progress. We'll just kind of keep spinning our wheels. And this is one of those hard pills I've had to swallow over the last few years that in my lifetime I might affect 100 people. Right. And I have to be okay with affecting 100 people because 
if if I can affect a hundred white people and that's a hundred more white people, and it's not my job, I don't, I can't change the world. But at the same time, I need to be able to have a, a to give a voice to this stuff for other by PCO by PLC folks who don't have a platform. So like how three goals for me was another platform. It was another way to have this conversation. I didn't expect it to go viral the way that it did. Um, but I there's a part of me that's kind of fortunate it did because living in Portland, Portlanders will detach themselves from their racism around here. Right. They will act white Portlanders will act like, well I'm not racist. Yes you are. You are supremely racist and problematically racist all the time. Most of Portland's structure is built on hipster culture and gentrification and right. that is two of the whitest things you could possibly throw into a pot right. and not expect the racist things to happen right like, right exactly the whole city's built on it so it's like it's, this city's built on gentrifying areas that used to be populous but by poc folks and that hipster culture would be cool and hip but that eliminates so many people from the equation so it's like whenever we have these conversations in portland Portland is like, well, that's not me. Lake Oswego is 20 minutes away from me. Right. That, that's a quick drive to the store for most of us. Yeah. Like, that's, you, that can't you can't remove yourself. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's in your backyard, and you're, just, and you're just as bad in different ways. Yeah. For lack of a better term, you are perpetuating, Not I won't even say bad. That's the wrong word. You are perpetuating the same things in different ways. Right. This city is supremely gentrified and redlined, and it's like you're perpetuating the same thing. So I feel like these are the kind of things that, when I posted, and this is why I got back into launching the website and writing again, because I feel like sometimes I have to intellectualize just enough for white people to be like, huh, I'm interested, didn't punch them. Uh, <laughs> 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 and it's a horrible way to put it. But it's like, I gotcha. Ah, I gotcha. You know, it's like, yeah. okay, got your interest. Now here's, the, now, here's the thing you did last week. And it's <laughs> the way it has to be. Because yeah. that's the only way to resonate with the empathic part. Right. Of whiteness. Because what the other aspect of whiteness is that even with the Lake Oswego City Council member I talked to, I could tell that some of the stuff made her so uncomfortable. And she was having a hard time with grappling with her empathy in the matter. Yeah. Not that she was unempathetic, but it was that I want to save you empathy. Right. Which is the wrong way to go to. Right. And that's the problem. When you talk with it when I and that's why I thought this was a good example of this is the situation that we find ourselves in. Well, as people of color, like I'm not just saying, telling you stuff like anecdotal. Right. I ain't got nothing else to do. Like this is my life. This right. is what I'm dealing with today. This is what other. I'm sharing other people's accounts. This is what they're dealing with too. You can't act like it's not happening around you. You can, and right. I can't be mad at you because technically you get to live in that space if you want to. But right. at some point, you have to acknowledge it. Yeah, and I think, I think over the last couple of years in our conversations, I know we're getting to wrapping it up in a couple of minutes, but. I think that's where there was a couple of years ago, and I think we talked about this last time, and I thought about it a lot more. Two, three years ago, three, yeah, I think three years ago at Comic Con, you posted something that was like, I don't know if there was a shooting or an immigration. Pro- I don't remember what it was. There was something going on. Oh, somebody got. Um, oh, it's it was it just came up. It was the anniversary of the young man that got shot. Um, and I can't remember where it is because we have so many now. Um, and, uh, you're like, somebody got shot and everybody's, all everybody's talking about is the newest trailer for the movie. And it was right in the middle of San Diego. And I got upset about it. Like you saying that I got upset because my, my mind was 
we deal with this stuff every day. This is our geekness. This is our culture that we've chosen to be part of. And it's, it's happening right now. It doesn't happen every day. So we're all excited about it. So can we have an hour or a day where we celebrate us together as, as that? So that was where my head was then. And that's how I reacted to it. Where And I think we went back and forth a couple of times where you were talking about growing up somewhere. And I don't think we knew each other at that point well. Like we kind of no. knew who we were, but we didn't know anything about our backgrounds or anything. So I think yeah. you made some assumptions. I made some, like it was this kind of like tipsy turvy kind of back Facebook back and forth, which does nobody any good. Right. Exactly. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah. And so exactly. I've thought about that. Like that keeps resonating with me, but it doesn't like, it's not festering, but it's been like, where is this for me? And I think I realized that between all of our conversations and all my own thinking and growing, you know, in the museum field and in relationships and kind of forming who I am and what I am, I realized like I tend to shut off all the trauma, right? But the one thing I can control is all these toys that are around me and all the stuff I watch, whether it's the movies and the TV. So when I get upset about something, I know now, like when I get upset about something, it's about that stuff because I feel like I can affect change in that. Like I can go in, like, I want to buy this. I want this. This is what I want in my life. Store won't give it to me. I'll fight the store, but I won't go stand in a, stand in a protest line, like to change the gun laws or to change the equality laws or to talk about immigration. I won't go do that because I don't feel like I can do anything. And it, it sucks, right? Because I'm in that position now in my head where this is going to take more of my energy, but it's just stuff. Like this little pop figure, this Ewok has been sitting on my table for three months, but I needed it that day. And like I had to make sure I got it. And it's so it's it's trying to adjust your priorities and, and, ha- and how you do things and, and realizing that like maybe it's, I don't know, Maybe it's not just maybe the maybe it's figuring out how to work through that trauma, you know, like it's yeah, and, and how to how to put your energy into like I've been putting more of my energy into my museum stuff lately. Like, how do we mm-hmm. we had we have a lot of changes, and I'll I'll kind of wrap wrap towards this. We're we're creating an immigration program at my museum, okay. And normally a program like this would have been created by like all the museum workers. And we have, um, we had a nice diverse group of educators this summer. I will say that we had young, we had my age, we had a little bit younger than me. We had a little bit younger than that. We had a nice group of people that were talking through this program. So we presented it and we named it coming to new Haven because we wanted that punch of like we wanted everybody everybody knows what coming to america is like the movie the eddie murphy movie so we wanted Mm -hmm. that and then we were like and then we're going to talk about immigration migration and 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 my boss was like are we sure we want to do that like are we sure we want to touch this are we sure we want to do it and i was like yes because guess what you have two people who had immigrant parents and we're going to build it off of those experiences and then teach the kids about what life in connecticut whether it's the city or the burbs what it was like for somebody to come from another country and deal with with different skin color you know not the white european skin color but like the darker skin color and what it was like for them 
and their experiences. And I said, so it's probably going to be one of the most authentic programs that we have here. And it's different than 90% of everything else we teach. And I hope it gets booked. I hope it gets, I've already booked it, which is amazing because yeah. we haven't even publicized it yet. And somebody already wanted it. Um, so it's, it's great, but it's like, so that's where I've been putting my energy going. Well, okay, here's where I can make a difference, um, and make a change and maybe we can do more of it. And, and that's the thing. That's the thing that's killing me. It's like, I want your stuff like that, that diversity, um, weekend, uh, that, that three day conference or that you went to earlier. Um, mm -hmm. I was like, I want to find something that like that in Connecticut for us to be able to do at yeah. the museum because there's so much, I think the difference between Connecticut and a lot of the other part of the country is Connecticut is built on towns. So yeah. all the towns do what they want to do. There is no, there is no group think here. Like, and that's yeah. the hardest part for us here in Connecticut is that we can't get a, a big city or one of our big cities, New Haven, where I work, where Yale is, we can't get them to talk to the suburbs and do stuff with them because yeah. they all want to do their own thing. So it's, so I'm hoping that programs like ours that we're building are going to start going out more and, mm -hmm. and getting booked more. So, um, yeah, so we're, we're almost at 90 minutes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I think we should wrap um, so what else you got going on? You got anything going on you want to plug, you want to promote? Uh, let's see. Um, the website, pure and simple. Um, okay. dot .com. Uh, I bought my own name because no one else wanted it, uh, which is always great in these respects. Um, but the website for sure. Um, okay. The website is where you can um, follow a lot of my content, a lot of things that I talk about, because I get into like really unwrapping some stuff on, with some of the articles and some of the things I post on the website. Um, it's a great way to kind of get um, a window into some things that are happening. Um, and this week I have a few. I'm This week the geek, the geek blog on the website will be fortified with some new stuff because um, I finished reading that House of X, and that was a pile of horse poop. And we're going to have a conversation about the X-Men and how racist the X-Men actually are, which is going to make some people really mad, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> well, they they were based on Martin Luther King, right? So it should be fine, right? <laughs> right. I want to unpack that and how messy that is because I read that. I read that House of X, and I was like, "Are you kidding me? Like this is what we doing now? We just gonna try to be like the Panthers and stuff? This is what we doing? Okay, sure. Oh, <laughs> I, I have an article that I'm working on about that. Okay, I'm um, in a couple of other things, but um, the website's always a good way to connect with me. Uh, connect with, um, it also gives you a launch pad to my other social media. Um, to follow me on there because I talk about stuff in real time on social media all the time. Very open about the things I talk about. Um, if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, um, I'm doing work with a group of, with an organization called Partners in Diversity. Um, and we do different programming throughout the city. And some of our programming this year is based on um, tackling anti-racism and white supremacy. Okay. So uh, follow the Partners in Diversity um, website. Um, if you live in the area, if you live in the Pacific Northwest, you want to check out some of those events. Um, other than that, also keep your eyes open because I got a couple of comics in the work right now. Oh, good. Um, gotten back into working on comics. <laughs> Took me a minute, but I'm in the right headspace now. I can dive back into writing and drawing, and so there's some stuff coming up in that as well, including some more um, some slice of life stuff. Talking about my experiences as a black HR person or just in a black person in general. 
Um, so all that stuff, I would say, stay tuned for. Cool. Sounds good. Well, thanks for thanks for taking the time tonight to this afternoon. Um, it was good to talk. It was good to catch up. Oh, yeah. As always, says. man. We'll have to do it again. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm sure. Because we'll like as I was, I was like, oh yeah, no, I want to go more into this, and I'm like, oh, I'll save it for next time. Like it's always good yeah. to save it for next time. Yeah. So. We'll book another one. We're all good. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> thanks good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Cool.